When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. It's raining. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns it! Touchdown, Oregon! Been making deposits. Time to cash a check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show. Presented by Scoop Duck with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck. Of course, I am Doug Scott, as always, joined by QB11 himself, Mr. Andrew. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Doug. It's been, it feels like I haven't spoke to you in forever, even though we talk every day. It, yeah, I mean, I, and we are we are still we're still a podcast. We're still putting out episodes. I know it's been about a week since we put out our Fiestival preview, and we appreciate all your patience uh, for you listeners and waiting for this uh, this recap episode and the other stuff we're going to be talking about today. It was a nice little little respite, I think, for both of us. You know, the the season is busy, and I you know we put out a ton of content, and we all have our our lives as well, and our work and everything, and and it's been a it was a nice little little lull there to recover and relax and uh but definitely excited to talk Oregon football because there's a lot to be excited about going forward QB and let's let's dive right into it um we'll, we'll talk about the Fiesta Bowl and the, the semifinals and the and the final but I, I kind of wanted to lead with like some of the roster stuff for the Ducks kind of some of what next year's looking like there's been a ton of announcements of people returning to Oregon and most of them are not surprising but still welcome um, a lot of returners have announced, I think pretty much everyone, Terrence Ferguson announced today. Um, I think the only ones we're waiting on now are a Johnny Cornelius at right tackle and Justin Jacobs at linebacker are really the only two, you know, guys that were potential drafty, you know, draft, draft declarations that haven't yet announced um, their intentions. You know, personally, I feel good without any intel. I, 
I just feel good about both of them probably coming back as well. And you can see, like Oregon has clearly coordinated these mess these these um, announcements, right? They've all been team edited videos. They've been rolled out one or two a day, like every day. Sort of certainly seems coordinated, don't you think? Yeah, I think Oregon's very intentional from a marketing standpoint, from a hype building standpoint, the way that they execute this. And um, I don't think this is any different than than how they've handled other such announcements in the past. So um, all of this is really, really good news. I mean, the one that's the most surprising to me um, is Jordan Birch, right? Like that's, I think that's where we need to start. What do you think? Yeah, start with him for sure. The, the biggest impact. This is a player who I think pretty likely would have been a day two pick um, had he gone pro. And this is one of the very few times where I would ever say, hey, you're a day two pick, but with another year, you probably actually can make yourself some money. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because day two picks or second round picks get four-year deals, first round picks get five-year deals. Money's a lot bigger in the first round. Uh, but more specifically for Jordan Birch, if you look at the way he developed throughout the season this year and the way he was playing at the end of the season, and then you think about what it could look like if his pass rush was to take another step forward, I think he's re I think he's right on the border of working his way into a pretty surefire day one pick. And so um I think this is gonna be a huge off season for Jordan Birch. Next year is gonna be a big prove it season. And I think that you're gonna see that in the way that the staff utilizes them, the opportunities that give them in pass rush situations. Um and I, I think he makes Oregon's defense so much better just having him on the roster going into next year. So huge, huge, huge pickup. Um getting him back in the uh <coughs> excuse me this <laughs> yeah i'll, I'll this, cut in here uh, yeah the stupid cough is still hanging around here a couple weeks later um but just it's just a huge pickup because you have the most dominant edge run defender of the country coming back who was really starting to flash um some pass rush ability and and, and a more refined pa- uh, rush plan towards the end of the season and i think with another year of growth in the off season uh program both strength and conditioning but i think more so getting really high level technical training, we could see Burge take that last step needed for him to really make himself quite a bit of money this year. Well, and he comes back and he's the undisputed leader in that along that defensive line, right? Like Brandon Doralis was was probably that guy. He's gone. Uh Popo's gone. Taki's gone. Uh, you know, uh, not Roberts. The the Casey Rogers is gone, right? So you've lost a lot of a lot of senior veteran leadership along that line, along that front. And obviously they don't all play the same position, right? But but he's now the guy, right? I mean, he and and Keon Ware Hudson is the only other like veteran returner along the defensive line as of right now. Um, but Jordan's like that's the guy that that's the leader in that room has to set the standard, has to be you know the first guy in in, in practice every day, and all the things you say, right? Because there's this you know massive crop of of young players along the defensive line that we brought in over the last two cycles, right? I mean, you got Amari Washington, you got Ben Roberts, you got Johnny Bowens, you got Terrence Green, you got Mikhail Gardner from the 23 class, and then you added, you know, Aiden Breland, Jericho Johnson, Xavion Sims, Tion, Tion and Gray from the 24 class, and then, of course, you got your, you know, Porter and and Uya Galele and, and Purchase and Tio Yodi from last class, too, along with, uh, you know, Elijah Rushing and Jackson Jones and, and Jaden Moore. I mean, like, I just named... 19 people that are in in the in the room between the defensive line and the edge players 
and Jordan Birch is the leader. He's the leader of that group. And, and <clears> it's just, it's just huge to have him back and have that kind of leadership back from both a, a skill and talent standpoint, but also like setting the tone with those younger players. Well, if you're telling, if you told me two months ago, you could pick one player that is most likely gone or is out of eligibility that could come back for next year, who would you pick? Jordan Birch would have been the answer immediately. Like, even more so than Bo Nix, like, because I think that what we did at quarterback in the portal with Dylan Gabriel and um, Dante Moore was really, really well done. So, yeah, the drop off, if there's any drop off from Nix to Gabriel, it's, you know, should be minimal based on everything we've seen and watching him and his, his, you know, how he fits into this offense, what he's done in, in five seasons at two schools already. You know the drop off from Jordan Birch to whoever's taking his his role next year is is probably much more severe. No matter how yeah. talented they are, they're still a young well, player who's all- played very few snaps. And Birch is also a more unique and difficult skill set to to get. Um, and so, I think having him anchor that front is going to be just a massive boon for Tosh Lapoy, Dan Lanning, and, and Coach Hampton and the defensive staff. So, um, I think that's the, that's the place to start. It, that is going to really bolster the defensive front. Um, obviously, Derek Harmon and uh, uh, Walter Nolan ended up elsewhere, um, and I'm, I'm sure there's still going to be some movement on the defensive line. But that's a that's a great place to go um, if you have to start off somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Bossa coming back is another another big one. You know, presumably if Justin Jacobs also announces there, you've got your starting linebacker core back, and then you've got you've got a bunch of young talent there to to fight for the second unit snaps behind them, right, and get ready to replace them as they both move on. You know, almost certainly after twenty twenty four, or certainly because they'll be their last year of eligibility. So, I mean, you've got obviously the the guys that are in the system, Devin Jackson, Jerry Mixon, but then you've got that young crop of twenty twenty four linebackers, Braden Platt, Dylan Williams, and, and Kamar Matuti, right? So, if those three and and plus the other guys from the twenty two and twenty three classes are are in the system and they're they're all going to have opportunity to play you know real snaps behind behind bossa and jacobs this year it it's it's like an it's almost ideal qb like we've been talking about seemingly for five six years like how do we get this roster to its ideal state right where you've got veteran high level starters backed up by highly talented you know first or second year players right that are ready to take those backup snaps and then you know move their way into the starting lineup the following year and we're not there at every position group across the roster but like at at, at defensive line at edge at, at linebacker like corner like we're there running back we're there tight end we're there right it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing the work that the staff has done in in, in the roster management and, and obviously dan and, and marshall maukow are, are the head of that I would agree with that. And I think that, again, the only position, like if we were to talk about this roster going into next year, um, under the assumption that Ajani and uh, Jacobs are in, are just left to announce that they're returning, where are the questions on this team going into next year? There, There's some huge right. questions on the interior of the defensive line. Um, and then really it's who ends up starting at, at star and boundary safety next to Savage. Yep. And other than that, there's really no question. It's just depth. It's just depth. It's, and 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 even there, like you, we have you have enough. You've seen enough depth at, at pretty much everywhere, 
right? To know that it's not a concern. I mean, obviously, you're going to be playing a, you know, a bunch of young guys on the defensive line now. I don't, I don't have concerns or questions about out of that massive list of people I just named. Enough of those guys are going to are going to be above the line, as Dan says, right? I, I can't necessarily say which ones, but I feel like there's enough there's enough of them in that room with enough talent that that they will be more than fine. And it's not all just speculation because we saw some of these guys play this year. Like Amari Washington uh, in the Liberty game played really, really good football. Terrence Green has flashed ability throughout the year. Um, we've seen tons of Mateo Iangolele and Blake Purchase and, and Tatum Tuioti. Um, and we know we know that there's other talented guys in that room, uh, whether it's a Johnny Bowens or a Michael Gardner. And then you see this class that's incoming and you get to see these guys in the Under Armour All-American game, the Army All-American game. And you, I, I, it's, I'm feeling pretty comfortable saying that you're going to be able to find three or four guys, five guys out of that group that are going to be ro- like quality rotational players for you. Um, and I think what you're really building here is you have a you have a buffer at the front, and I think that's where Oregon will want to add one more interior defensive lineman through the portal, where you have the Birch, you have the the Warehudsons, and then you have another a transfer player, and then you just have this massive stock of unbelievably talented young guys um that that just gives you it gives you the ability to play those guys as they earn the reps as opposed to forcing guys into roles that they're not ready for um but there also is going to be some pressure on those guys especially the guys that were here last year to 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 really develop this offseason and to become the players um that they can be because Oregon's roster management on paper has been perfect to this point in the sense that you have a bunch of high-end elder statesmen in the on the team, whether it's at linebacker with Bossa and Jacobs, whether it's at defensive back with Manning and Florence, uh, Kobe Savage coming in at safety, and the offensive line, you return your your bookends. Your your new starting center just got to start a bowl game uh, and looked really, really good, and you're only replacing the right guard with a transfer. Uh, you're you're losing a guy like Troy Franklin, but <clears throat> Dickey's coming into year two. There's reports of Evan Stewart being on campus right now, uh, and you just recruited lights out at the receiver position. You still have an opportunity to add a guy like Gallum there. So you lose Bucky Irving, you get Noah Whittington back, Jordan James returns, and then you add a transfer running back. And they've recruited well across the board at all these positions. And so it's like, okay, well, <clears throat> you recruit these guys because you want to play them, because you want to coach them up, get them ready, teach them your system, and then get them out on the field because these guys are the ones, the ones that are coming up the pipeline right now, those guys that are going to be true sophomores, redshirt freshmen, true freshmen, are the guys that you, when I'm talking about you, I'm talking about Dan and Marshall, handpicked to be yep. the prototype for this team. And so... It's time that those guys come of age. It's time that they play, but they're going to be able to play in roles that allow them to come along smoothly as opposed to being forced. And I also think if you look at next year's schedule, uh, it's conducive to that type of, of development and then and kind of acclimation period for the younger players. Yeah, it's similar to this year. And, you know, you got the, well, now the Hawaii game's been canceled. So they're down to 12 games. I think it was a smart move uh, once, not canceled, but it'll happen in some future year. Uh, ideally, after the high, you know, the new stadium opens in Hawaii, which makes, makes way more sense for the Ducks to go out there anyway. But, um, you know, there's still four, four or five games before the Ohio State game, right? And they're all pretty, pretty winnable games, right? You've got your, your three out of conference 
three out of conference games. And then you've got, I think UCLA and Michigan state to open conference play. Um, and it went to Boise state, Oregon state, and whatever the FCS team we played this year is right. Like that's a, that's a very manageable five game lead in, right. To get everyone, like you said, get everyone up to speed, get everyone's feet wet, get reps to everyone, even even the guys who aren't starting, right? Even the guys who aren't in the two deep, just like we did this year, get a lot of reps to those to those true freshmen and and redshirt freshmen, and 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 then be ready to go for the Ohio State game and and beyond. Yeah, it's it's a this is as well put together of a roster as I've ever seen at Oregon. There's still a couple pieces probably to add. <clears throat> in the coming weeks here ahead of, uh, ahead of winter <laughs> training, but all things considered, even if we didn't, if we could not add anybody else to the transfer portal, I'd feel pretty damn good going into next year with a team that's like, that's currently in place. Yeah. I mean, I mean, from a transfer perspective, they're obviously done a quarterback, running back, tight end, um, edge linebacker. I think there's they're obviously recruiting wide receivers um, or a wide receiver. Uh, the interior defensive line, as you mentioned, we still hear some other scuttle about a potential a, a defensive back. Like there's they're they're kicking the tires on a couple different names. So whether that's a, a nickel type or a safety or or a corner, it seems like there's some of those names have been more nickel nickel type players. Um, Brandon Johnson out of Duke, and there was a more recent rumor, I can't remember his name, also looked to be mostly a guy who plays over the slot. So, you know, there could be three more additions, and and right now I've got Oregon somewhere between 86 and 89 scholarship players. To, it's really hard to know the number anymore, QB, because the specialists. It is impossible to know how many specialists are on scholarship. Like It, it just is. Like, we have uh, seven specialists on the team, I guarantee you they're not all on scholarship. As few as two might be, as many as five might. I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> Nobody knows other than unless you have inside information from the team directly. And well, so there's, there's also been the situation where we don't really know. Um, there's some guys that we assumed were on scholarship that aren't on scholarship. Yeah. And Casey Kelly has moved on, but I think there was a lot of rumor about him. Connor Soley. not. And Connor Soleil. And then I think the Jay Harris, the running back we got out of D3 this year transfer, it's been reported that he's not on scholarship either. So, um, and we don't have to get into all the ins and outs of how they make that happen. You know, it's legal. A lot of other teams are doing some of this stuff as well. It's NIL, right? It's, it's, there's, there's ways to make that kind of stuff happen. So it's hard to know the true number, but I think it's fair to say that Oregon is, is at least a couple, you know, somewhere between two and five spots over the 85. If they add two to three more players, you know, add two or three more to that number. So there's probably still going to be another four to five transfers out come spring, come spring ball. And that would be expected. We saw that last year too, right? Like spring ball happens, people kind of figure out where they are on the depth chart and and then they make their decisions at that point in time. So, Well, I think um, that this class that just signed also, when you look at the volume of guys that are winter enrollees from that group, it's yeah. everyone but three guys. And it's They're funny because the three guys. offensive linemen from Oregon. And so what's going to end up happening with that is you're going to have some guys who are on the roster who probably feel pretty good about where they sit now, losing jobs or losing position, not like, well, not losing positions, but losing rotational snaps 
with some incoming freshmen, and then that'll that'll spur some additional movement. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right, and we saw a little bit of that um, that last year as well. So, um, anything more you want to say about the roster management? I guess I'll I'll say one more thing. You know, just the the raw talent. Going back to that, like last year, Oregon was at about sixty one percent on the blue chip ratio. A point nine zero five eight composite average across the entire roster. Um, a little bit higher on offense than defense. This year, the the blue chip ratio has gone from sixty one. Again, this is tentative. It will fluctuate as these final roster spots get worked out. But as it stands right now, the blue chip ratio has gone from sixty one percent last year on fifty two blue chips to sixty four blue chips, seventy two percent. You've got you know twelve more four and five stars on this year's roster, twenty twenty four roster, than there were on the twenty twenty three roster, which is kind of insane to say like that's Very a much, big uh, jump it is a huge jump and it it makes sense like especially defensively it's like when you look at what's leaving on the defensive line for example these guys weren't highly rated guys and everyone that's coming in is highly rated um so that's gonna that's gonna help yeah. those numbers yeah the average the average team uh composite went from 9058 to 9115 the offense actually went down but the defense Went from nine zero two nine to nine one six six. It jumped up a, a point and a half in one off season. Um, and again, this is raw roster talent, recruiting rankings, right? Like you know, not everyone's going to pan out like their rating. We know all that, but on the aggregate of an eighty five person roster, this is meaningful. I would this rather have this job. roster than the twenty sixteen roster that Telfrich recruited. <laughs> yeah. Without without question, no disrespect to Mark because I think he's I think he's a I think he was a good coach, but um, this roster is like so well put together and constructed, and there's so much depth of talent, and really like the youth on this team is going to be so fun to watch because that's the future of the roster. Like we like this is going to be kind of the last transitional season, and then it literally the whole the keys of the car get turned over to this young group that that landing staff have recruited a hundred percent. So yeah, I, yeah. Between, I mean, there's not a lot of Mario recruits left in 2024. I'll have to do a count. I mean, it's probably in single digits now. But even even kind of some of that transitional class of Dan, right? The 2022 class where they're really kind. I mean, they're technically his guys, but not. You know, we've talked about this. You know, you come in, you're trying to close a class that you know. Yeah, I mean, right, there's some guys that obviously game. they really wanted. There's the the Josh yeah. Connerleys and the Jaleel Florences, but um, what I'm what I'm talking about more so is it won't be like the roster this year, last year, and next year. It does have a lot of um, uh, spot filler, stopgap, transfer portal guys, and I I really think that next year, like if we were to go by percentage of the starting twenty two, the vast majority will be like in-house recruited out of high school. Yeah. I mean, that percentage this year that came out of the transfer portal was very high, especially on defense. Like it was, it was more than half the defense and, and at least, you know, a third or so of the offense. So probably overall 40 to 45% of the starting of the starters were portal guys this season. And even in this 2024 season, that number, will be not as high as that but it will be it will be high because of the reason you said these are guys and especially since with guys like birch coming back guys like jacobs coming back right like those were 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 
filling spots that were holes on the roster, but those were also really high quality transfers, right? So it was actually, those are ones you don't mind. It's, it's, I don't know, I'm not going to name any names, but like there's some other positions where the Ducks just needed to get a, a, a body that was better than the body that they had, but it wouldn't be as good as the body they're going to have in a year or two, right? There's players that played pretty significant roles on the team last year that wouldn't get recruited by the staff now. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that. I mean, they, they've only taken, I mean, outside of the kicker, I think they've only taken five transfers this year so far, which is a third of the, the number they brought in last year. And even if they add a couple more, you're still talking somewhere between seven and eight transfers, which is probably half half of the number they brought in last year. And all seven of those eight are like high, like high quality, right? Like they fill a, a direct need, right? Uh, you know, obviously you're bringing in your starting quarterback and you're bringing in your your backup quarterback and future potential starter, right? You're bringing, if you bring in a guy like Evan Stewart, you're talking about a, you know, potentially your number one wide receiver this year, right? A Matthew Bedford is a starter, four-year starter on the offensive line. So, yeah, and then, and then obviously we mentioned Savage. So they're bringing in guys that are not just filling spots, but also filling them at what, based on their own historic performance at an extremely high level. Yeah, agreed. And I think the, as the, as they've gotten their footing here, is you really have to recruit two, three classes out. So this class is like the 24 class is a really good example, um, of, of what is going to be normal here in terms of talent acquisition. Um, and the class before it was damn good too. So those guys are going to start earning jobs. Yeah, it's super exciting. I can't wait for 2024 QB. I know it's still um, a little less than nine months away, but man, it's going to be, and we're in the big 10 and I, I, you know, it's so great. I I canceled my PAC 12 network um, service. I don't need that anymore. I I started unfollowing a lot of the PAC 12, like Twitter accounts and social media accounts. I don't need those anymore. It's like, I'm, I'm super excited about this move and just, and that, but mostly like even, if, well, I don't care what conference we're in, I'm just excited about where this team can be next year. Like, I, and it was a great season this year, 12 and two. We're going to talk about the Fiesta Bowl here next, but like, this is just like, as Dan said, we're just getting started. Like this is, yeah, this is I mean, the beginning of, of a rise and a journey. Like this isn't the, Hey, this is like, you know, you look back 10 years ago, it'd be like 12 and two would be like, that's a, that's a monster season, right? Like we can only hope to do that once every few years. Like now it's like, this is what I think if you ask Dan, he would say, this is the, this is a floor type season. This is the minimum acceptable season. Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree with that. And I think, um, when, when you like a perfect microcosm, look at the tight end position, right? So Casey Kelly was tight end three this year. Appreciate his hard work, but he, he moves on. Why? Because Kenyon Sadiq is very clearly a much better player who's going to be stepping into a much more major role next year with with Ferguson returning, with Sadiq stepping into that role and Herbert returning. It's like you're you're starting to sprinkle in some really unique high-end talent that that elevates your team. Because like now it's marginal gains. It's one player to another. What's the gain? Because it's the overall roster is very good. Like what? What? What steps can Connor Lee and Cornelius take this offseason to get stronger and become more of a displacement blockers in the run game? Um, what? What steps forward can guys like Tez Johnson and Treshawn Holden take um, to, as they step into roles 
what what can Jury and Dickey next year after a full off season in the program bring to the table in in, in a situation where Oregon is no longer going to only have three receivers that they trust to play? Um, and what it, it, at the defensive back position? What what is adding players like Aaron Flowers, Dakota Fields, if Obedegwu do um, to your to your to your rotation in the back half of the defense? And what does it do to your ability to be able to cover teams um, that go deeper with high end quality at receiver? So th- these are the types of marginal gains that need to be made in order to go. I know the the theme of this season was good to great. You want to become like truly nationally elite, like. The, and you want to be able to win national titles in a twelve-team playoff, or you're gonna ha- you might have to win three games. Um, those are the steps that that really matter, and they don't look that big um, until that guy goes out there on third and ten and makes one play that the guy that he's replacing wouldn't have been able to make. Um, and I, I think the tight end room is a perfect example of that because I think we really know what we're going to get out of Herbert. I think that um, Ferguson can obviously take a step forward as a blocker and become a more dominant overall, well-rounded player. What Sadiq is going to bring to the table is a level of explosiveness and and um, and versatility at the tight end position that makes us an entirely different unit to defend in thirteen personnel or twelve personnel. So those types yeah. of guys, I mean, those types of matchups are are what is um, going to elevate this team going forward. Is those 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 more nuanced things that can change year over year. Sorry for rambling. No, no, I was just saying, Sadiq, I mean, look at that touchdown he had in the bowl game against Liberty. Like, he outran their DBs to the corner. Like, I mean, that guy, it, he's he's incredibly fast. Uh, and that was, an, that was an incredible play. And we saw him do that earlier in the season, too, on a, I think they did a tight end around, <laughs> and he scored a touchdown on on earlier in the year. So, he... Uh, he's an incredible talent uh, at, at that and a weapon. He's like, a, oh, you know, jumbo, kind of like a jumbo tight end or jumbo wide receiver, hybrid tight end, whatever you want to call him, right? But like, he is a super weapon as a playmaker at tight end, which is yeah, is, uh, is very unique in the sport. Is he going to catch like 80 balls for a thousand yards next year? No, he's not. But like, his 20 catches are going to be more explosive, dynamic, and difficult to to defend than whatever it was that Casey Kelly got this year. No disrespect to Casey Kelly. Because that's just the type of athlete that Sadiq is. And that's those are the steps you make with this type of talent acquisition. <laughs> I, I'm I'm imagining in my mind that like corner route that Kelly ran that that hurt that Bo Nix threw and, and he was like prompting him to run faster. You know, like like yeah, Sadiq makes that catch. That's a touchdown. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like uh, it, when 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 you're an offensive coordinator and you're trying to like when you're putting plans together, especially with how versatile it, like Oregon is from a personnel standpoint, from a formational standpoint, and how much different stuff we can throw at you, when you start adding in these kind of unicorn players in the sense that they just have like such versatile skill sets and they're they're unique athletes for their size or for their position, it starts getting like basically impossible to defend. Uh, and so like, when I look at Oregon next year, I fully anticipate a top five offense again. There's no reason it can't, it won't be. Um, and so the question then rolls over the defense side of the ball. Can Oregon make the improvements necessary to take a step forward and become a true top 15, top 10 unit on that side of the ball? 
Yeah, I mean, they by most metrics, Oregon's defense this year was was either in the high teens or the low twenties, right? So, I mean, that that was a huge step from last year, going from forty five to fifty range to you know eighteen to twenty two, depending on what metric you want to look at. So, that was a massive step forward already. And and you're right, like there's no reason this defense can't continue to even step, you know, take take more steps forward from there. And and uh, you know, Dan and company, they're really. They're not, this is a word Bud Elliott's used a couple times this week on Twitter. And I think on the cover three podcast, a a term he used, and I really like the distinction because I think it really spells it out is, and he talked not just about Oregon. He's used this to talk about a lot of teams. Are you building a team for a single season or are you building a program program? As he would say, a program as Dan would say, right. And, and Dan is clearly building a program, right? Like if Dan wanted to go out and build the best team he could for 2023, it probably looks a little bit differently than the team we had, right? Not not significantly, but maybe maybe there's a three or four guys that that hired guns that maybe would have been better for this season than than but would have would have cost you something in the longer term, right? Because you didn't get somebody you know, that means you couldn't have grabbed another player instead. I'm just spitballing here, but the idea, but. I think the point is, is that this is this is built to be sustainable, not a hey, we're going to have this one great year every three or four years where we can make a run and make the playoffs and maybe win a game or two. Like this is a program that's being built to be one of those programs that's in the playoffs every single year. That doesn't mean they're going to make it every single year, but in a twelve-team era, like the the way Dan is building this program, like it's a team that he expects and and quite likely could be should be in the playoffs three out of four years four out of five years right like you have a you have an injury year or something where you don't make it or a fluke thing and you know things happen but that's the type of program that's being built here mm. and it's like this is just this is the first year not the last year right this is it just it's just gonna just grow from here and i i'm i'm so excited about it it's it's not a matter of like a lot they talk about this on that podcast as well like you add all these teams everyone's uh loss expectation goes up by a quarter game Oregon's Oregon is elevating their program to a, to a place where the expectation for wins and losses doesn't change despite going to a much more difficult and deep conference that's that's the type of movement that's been made here over the last couple of years yeah yeah I, I couldn't agree more. Well, we've rambled for half an hour. We haven't talked about the game yet. So you ready to get to that? Sure. All right. Not that it's rambling. It's good stuff. I, I can talk about this stuff and we'll talk about this stuff a lot because we got a lot of off season now to cover material, but let's get into this, uh, the Fiesta Bowl. Um, and we talked about this in the preview, right? Is, you know, could have, Oregon could have took this as a disappointment, uh, for a variety of reasons, but you know, they came out and most everybody played and, uh, after a, a little bit of a slow start there in the first quarter, Liberty, you know, scored on their first drive, went up six, nothing, Oregon scored a field goal to, to cut it. And then I think trailed six to three at the first quarter. And then it was just a bloodbath. It was just an absolute bloodbath. Oregon showed why, why they are a top four team in the, in this country and why Liberty is not anywhere near that level. Yeah, if there's anything we've learned about Dan Lanny coached Oregon teams is that when they're better than a team, they exercise their will on them. Um, and that was the case here. Oregon just abused them up and down the field on both sides of the ball. I, I mean, 
once once Liberty was off script and Oregon had a chance to make adjustments to what they saw on the first drive, it was wrapped. Yeah, it was it was pretty much a beatdown. Um, and it was just like playing for records. Bonex set four records in this game. Um, technically, and one's kind of a double up, but he he um he he broke Marcus Mariota's records for single season passing yards and single season passing touchdowns. He kind of set or broke his own record, if you will, for the completion percentage for Oregon. And then he also set the national NCA record for um, completion set completion percentage in a single season. So, you know, there was a lot of games to ship around that and he played deep, much deeper into the game than I expected, you know, um, but he wanted, he wanted to keep playing. Like you could use, they showed a shot of him on the sideline and they're like, you know, He's like, I want to keep playing. And they're like, no, no, you got to come out, you know, but that's just that. That's just Bo. That's just his personality. And I think that, I mean, everyone had their own decision to play in this game. But I I think when you're, when your quarterback comes out and says, I'm playing, there's a domino effect from that. And, and, and I, you know, just the way that he approached this game and it, you know, I mean, he will be missed for sure. Yeah. I think that, um, in, in a day and age when not everybody plays for the love of the game, like there's one thing that is very clear to me about Bo Nix. Um, is that he he loves this game and he he appreciates the college game and the experience. And I think that it's a sign of the maturity, yes, that he has. And <clears throat> I mean, you'd expect that he's a fifth year player who's who's married and has probably a little bit different perspective on life than a lot of the younger guys on the team. But he also he also is just I don't know. He's he's a special kid. I think I, I think that as much as. Um, I think Oregon's going to have really good quarterback play for a long time. I think that Bo Nix is, is is pretty unique in in the way that he carries himself and and just how much he does love this game, um, and the way that he loves his team. And so I'm I'm hoping that he can set a standard that can be followed up by subsequent quarterbacks, whether it's Dylan Gabriel, whether it's um, whether it's Dante Moore, uh, Achilles Smith Jr., Luke Moga, whoever it ends up being, as this quarterback lineage of Oregon and the torch is passed forward. Um, but there, there's not to be all sappy, but there's there's something really refreshing about the way that Bo Nix approached this season, the perspective that he brought. Um, I think back to his press conference after the Washington loss and, and some of his, um, yeah, some of his comments following that game, and it's just um, that that is it's much needed. Um, and it's something that I think is unfortunately a little bit more rare now, not to be like that old guy yelling on his front porch. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it was a, it was a, a major blessing to be able to watch him perform this year and play, um, and, and the way he carried himself. Absolutely. And, and I think he had, he had the, the comments he made after the first Washington game were, I mean, definitely it's something I've bookmarked and. Have watched a few times since then, but but he also had a set of comments after the second Washington game, and uh, that I thought were were also pretty poignant. And yeah, he, he's he's unique, and I, I think the way he said coming out and playing for the love of the game, and I think a lot of the guys did that, and they and none of them wanted to go out the way they went out, right? They said they wanted to go out with a win, they wanted to go out with end the season right, you know. And and Bucky Irving's another one, right? I mean, he obviously was not right physically you know in that in that title game in vegas unfortunately for him and and the ducks but in you know he he's going to the nfl i mean he easily could have like hey i'm hurt i'm going to the nfl like why am i going to play this game but like bucky wanted to play in this game and he ran for 117 yards and 
and he got they got him a touchdown and they they did a nice you know kind of gesture to pull him from the game and let him get a standing ovation as well i was a little disappointed that the the tv coverage didn't didn't do him justice on that like they had for Bo the play before i i felt felt that was wrong but um you know good way for him to end his his career as well Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It all goes to kind of reinforcing the substance of of the connection that the staff um, and the culture that's being built in Eugene. Obviously, there's guys that opted out, and I, I'm never going to hate on a guy for opting out and doing what what's best for them um, financially. And, and you're talking lots and lots of money, life changing money um, in a lot of cases. And so, when guys make that decision, there's no to me I, as a fan, I can't sit here and tell you not protect what could change your family's life for forever. Um, yeah. And I think two, two of those guys that opted out have been dealing with injuries for, for the second, the entire second half of the season and playing through them. And, 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 and the other one had gotten injured in the, the conference title game. I don't know how severe it was, but it, it's, uh, it's understandable. For yeah, of course. And, and even if yeah. they weren't injured, like it, it's, I understand that, like I understand if like think about it from the perspective if it was your son or your your family member, um, and I I get it. It makes sense to me still. So, but to see Bucky come out and run as hard as he ever has run, um, and to see Bo play deep into the game the way he played, um, and 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 those are not the only guys like Jordan Birch coming off an injury. I know he was probably already planning to come back before this game was played. But for him to come out and in and, and gut it out and play, I mean, he only played ten snaps, but give us good ten snaps. Um, I don't know. I, I think it says a lot about about what's been built here and and the fact that the guy, the players, really are connected, and and that's not just lip service from the staff. Yeah, they wanted to play for the team and they wanted to play for each other, and that and that says a lot. Um, the other thing I'll say about Bucky was his his massive run there, forty four yard run there early in the game, really is what kind of broke the thing wide open, right? I mean, Oregon had kind of been like lolling around a few f- first couple drives and then he, he ripped that sucker off and then it was like the floodgates just burst and, and it was, you know, it's a massive blowout from, from that point onward. So, you know, that was a, that was a huge play and it was, it was, it was classic Bucky, right? Like just, you know, seeing things that aren't there, seeing things, other, th- seeing things other people can't see cutting back, you know, take him a long way around and you know fortunately he didn't he didn't get that one into the end zone but they got him they got him one later so that was that but that run was key 
Couldn't agree more. Um, I'm I'm just, despite the fact that this game is six points or seven points away from being uh, one one of the more special seasons of my life, I still really enjoyed this season and this team um, for some of the qualities that we're discussing right now. And I know, again, that some of them are a little bit more like, I'm not sitting here trying to take moral victories. It's disappointing to lose to the Huskies twice in the same season um, in a year where they're playing for a national title now and, and we're sitting at home. Um, after playing a, an out overmatched team in a Fiesta Bowl, but it's it it was still a, a very fun team to watch, and quite frankly, this is probably one of my favorite teams I've ever seen at Oregon. I agreed. I mean, it's certainly in my top top three or four all time Oregon teams. Not just I mean, not just from a like quality of the team, but how much did I enjoy this season? Even like you said, with those two heartbreaking narrow losses. Um, you know, it, there was a lot of positives to come out of the season and, and a lot to look forward to, you know, where this team's going to go next. And it just, the the player, it's hard to root against, it, it, not root against, but it's hard not to root for these guys, right? Uh, and I thought the the players and, and the leaders on the team really, really showed out and really gave you a lot. You know, Tez Johnson, he's, who's coming back, hit 11 catches for 172 yards in this game, broke Troy, just broke Troy Franklin's uh, rece- uh, reception record, single season reception record. So, uh, Troy only owns two of the three now for for single season records, but um, you know, big day for Tez. Obviously, if Troy had played, I'm sure he would still hold that record. And you know, it's kind of the way the weird stuff works with college football records. But uh, big game for Tez. Treshawn Holden, who's also returning, you know, had had five catches for for 69 yards and a touchdown, and they kind of just spread the ball around from there to to everyone. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an overall super strong performance by everybody that participated and um it was as dominant as you would hope and expect when you're out, out matching a team physically the way that Oregon did so I'm very pleased with with the outcome of this game um I thought that there was a lot of quality reps given to younger players and opportunities for guys to, to show that they deserve bigger roles um and, and and some guys to look forward to going into the offseason yeah, I thought I thought you know when we previewed this game, like we both said like oh like Oregon's Oregon's gonna do whatever they want on offense and out and once they stopped to get out of their own way there in the first quarter, that's pretty much what they did the rest of the game. Um, I mean they they were just they were it was like they were just playing Madden almost like oh let's call this play oh let's try this this cool reverse play we put in for this game you know it was just it was just kind of backyard football at that point I'm like oh. You know what? We need to give him a touchdown. So let's, you know, it kind of felt like one of those games where you're just toying with your opponent on that side of the ball. But, you know, uh, impressed by the Oregon defense. You know, after that first drive, they really, really didn't give up a whole lot after that. I mean, you know, Liberty ran for 168 yards, but I mean, they just run the ball a ton. And, and a lot of that came early in the game as well. And Oregon adjusted. And then it kind of just became, uh, you know, they just slogged them down the rest of the game. So I thought, I thought, I thought I was, I was, you know, we we had talked. I said, oh, you know, maybe Liberty will score a couple of points, and I think you were like, I don't know, they might, you know, they could script, they could scheme some stuff. They have a unique offense that you know you don't see very often, which is all true. But you know, holding them to six, I think, is a nice, a nice showing. You're on mute. It was, it was a really good showing, and there was opportunities for. Um, liberty to put some more points on the board, but Oregon forced turnovers and, and found stops and um, did a really nice job of of limiting that system. And so um, that that that's a quality quarterback that will be playing at a much higher level at a bigger school next year. So <clears throat> not, nothing but uh, 
that that's an impressive performance for the defense, regardless of of how Liberty is viewed, because I think that their offense um, is actually a very high quality offense. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, you want to switch over and talk about the playoffs? Sure. I don't really we want to, to, but we can. <laughs> Let's talk about Alabama, Michigan. So they played in the Rose Bowl. Uh, it was a very highly viewed game, as you can imagine, between it's Rose Bowl and then having those two teams in it. Uh, and it was also a good game. It went to overtime. Michigan won 27 to 20. You know, the, watching this game, the two things struck me, you know, early on in this game. Like, I mean, Michigan's defense was really impressive. Um, but at halftime, I felt like, man, Michigan dominated this game and they're only up by three points. And, and Alabama, you know, was, I think, outplayed Michigan in the second half, you know, in most of the second half. Um, and it looked like they were going to win until Michigan kind of marched the field and got the tying touchdown at the end and then, and then dominated OT. And it's an, it, it was an interesting game, QB. I, I what do you think? I think the better team won the game. Um, Michigan dominated the front on both sides of the ball. Uh, and Michigan was a better quarterback team and, and the team that had uh, found ways to be explosive when they needed to be, I think, late in the fourth quarter, um, as well as uh, in, in overtime. So um, I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have a ton of expansive thoughts on either of these games. I watched them very casually. I have not bothered to go back and watch them any more than that. Yep. Uh, but to me, watching the game, it was pretty clear that Michigan was the superior team on the fronts, um, and, th- and that that showed throughout the game. And I think as the game wore on, it sh- showed more and more. Yeah, it definitely did. You know, as the game wore on, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we talk about the final game. But uh, you know, I'm not impressed by McCarthy. I mean, he, you know, he threw for three touchdowns, no interceptions, in 220 yards. But I watch him play over and over again, and I'm, it's just like. If they have to rely on him to beat Washington, I, I I'm worried for them. Um, I just I thought, don't think that Michigan's a team that's ever going to rely on him to do that, though. It's just not. Well, I, like, you know, I don't. I don't think that'll be their plan. I just say like, if it comes down to it, I think they're. I mean, he. You know, he threw what should have been, could have been a pick at, on the first play of the game. Um, I thought he managed. He's a game manager, and I thought he managed the game pretty well. But you're right. I mean, Michigan's going to lean on their offensive line and lean on the run, and they only ran for 130 yards. But it felt like when they needed it, they got it. And and when they needed to make plays through the air, I mean, you know, McCarthy and and them did. So I I was this game. I was I was impressed by Michigan, but I was also surprised by that Alabama wasn't better. like especially on the lines, right? That was real. That was the most surprising thing to me coming out of this game is was watching Alabama get, I don't want to say dominated, but outplayed on both lines of scrimmage. Well, it didn't help that on a, basically a third of offensive snaps, there was an errant snap by the Alabama center. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm not even like exaggerating. That's actually the stat. It was like it, it was, was like bad. 23 out of 60 something snaps were had errant snaps. Um. But Michigan's a really well-coached physical team, and they've got good players. And so, like, while I expected Alabama to be able to hang in better than they did, um, and again, I think that holding Michigan to 120-some yards rushing is, is actually a very strong performance. I don't expect Washington to be able to replicate that performance that Bama put out. Um, no. But the thing about Michigan is they're always going to run for one more yard than they need to. 
Uh, and and <laughs> that's just who they are. That's that's their system. That's they don't. They're not. They're not out there going for production. They're going to get as many yards as they're needed to win a game. Um, and they always find a way to get those. I heard Saban say something really interesting this week, and it it strikes me as potentially accurate. Is that Michigan huddled, and it, it was the first. They you know most teams don't huddle anymore, or at least not regularly. And and Nick Nick was saying that because of the huddle, they their defense did not have as much time to make their calls. Like when when Michigan broke the huddle and lined up in formation, and uh, at time you saw this, you saw that at times, especially early in the game, where Alabama was trying to was scrambling to trying to get their their play calls in. You know their coverage calls, their their you know stunt calls, whatever whatever their different you know segments of calls were. Because they just, you know, they they don't get to do all the pre-snap reading when the team huddles, and I'm like, it's almost like it's like a football cyclical, right? Like when when only a couple teams were doing the hurry up, no huddle, like people couldn't defend it, and then everyone started doing it, and now people know how to defend it, and now someone goes and plays a huddle offense, and and teams are so used to being able to call their their defense based on on how somebody's lined up, and now they can't do that or as as effectively. It was an interesting comment, and it it. Something to think about, I guess, or maybe as we watch this this game on Monday. I mean, it's just another way to keep the chalk in your coaching staff's hands last, right? To do that, like the muddle huddle and then break quick up to the line. Because if if your defense is reliant on looking to the sideline to get the call after the the formation has been set, that's that's a, an advantage for the offensive staff, right? And so. That's where, like, having the benefit of a guy like Jeffrey Bossa, who's out there like a coach calling defense is really, really, like, it's something that I think that Oregon fans take for granted with him. Um, whereas, like, there's teams where their linebackers can't aren't as well prepared and they can't make those calls. And so they do have to look to the sideline on every snap and certain teams with certain types of tempo. And, and to me, that kind of huddle is a tempo um, and take advantage of it. Let's go on to the other game. Uh, Washington uh, beats Texas 37-31. <laughs> this game was kind of wild. It, it definitely felt like Washington dominated the, the first half of this game, and yet it was tied at halftime at 21 apiece, and and Penix was dealing right from the start. I mean, he was... This was like vintage Michael Penix Jr. It was not the second half of the season, Michael Penix Jr. It was the first half of the season, Michael Penix. He like like... Uh, I you know I hate to I hate to compliment a husky but like his accuracy in this game on long throws long throws was it was oh, insane. He's unconscious right now. He's playing insane yeah. football. Like like it's like the old NBA Jam game where you get you get the like he's on fire thing and literally you can't miss from anywhere on the court. Yeah, no, he's playing completely absurd football right now. Like. He's playing better better football than any quarterback in the country. I mean, obviously, there's only two quarterbacks playing football right now, but you know what I'm saying. Like he, he's making yeah. throws with anticipation, with pressure in his face that just are not normal. Like those are not. And um, he's dropping these throws in forty yards hmm. down the field on a dime. Like, let's like, be honest. Like this Washington team has no business being where they're at, but he's playing so well that you like a like it's obvious why they're there. They have great and receivers. And the receivers. I he, mean, I, I mean, give Aduze and Polk credit too, and McMillan even now. But he is playing. I, he is, yeah. It's 
It's absurd. It t- it's hard <laughs> not to admire, despite the fact that I hate everything about that team. I know it's it's super frustrating, um, and and obviously we lost to them twice this year, so it, it just makes the frustration even even stronger. And and it's like he's like a cheat code when he's playing the way he played in this game. And uh, you know, Michigan obviously has better defensive backs than they have. You know, some of the best defensive backs in the country. They're going to need to show it, and and I think Michigan's going to need to get some pressure on Penix. They don't necessarily need to sack him, you know, or, or a lot, but you know, I think they need when when Penix has been thrown off his rhythm this year, it's been when teams have gotten pressure to him. Arizona State did it. Oregon did it, particularly in the first game. Um, like a, a couple other teams I'm not remembering right now, I think had Oregon State maybe had some success on that late in the year. Uh, Washington State a little bit as well, right? And, and they're throwing, well, when you throw out, because like, it does seem like his game is very accuracy-based, or it's very timing-based, rhythm-based is what I meant to say, rhythm and, rhythm and timing-based. And when you can throw him just off that rhythm and timing, even just the tiniest amount, that's when we've seen him throw interceptions. That when, That's when we've seen him short, you know, throw balls errant. Um, and so I think that's what Texas was not able to do at all in this game. And I think Michigan will need to have to do, uh, or he'll discard them up too, even, even with the better DBs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, if if Penix is playing as well as he played against Texas, they're unstoppable. It's just the yeah. truth. So um, <laughs> that was that was one of the most impressive games I've ever seen from a college quarterback. I, I guess from a pure passing perspective, right? Like we've seen guys, we've seen games like the uh, what the Texas quarterback from you know when they won their title. I can't yeah, but I'm Vince, Young, Vince Young Vince couldn't Young. make any of the throws. Right, that, right. right. It's a, it was a super game. impressive game, but in a very different way. I, I, yeah. From a pure passing standpoint, where you're just dropping back. I know he ran for some yards, and that was a nice weapon they used in this game, but I'm just talking about from from a pure passing perspective, I'm hard-pressed to think of a more impressive single game passing in college football. <laughs> it would than, have to be Joe Burrow one. against Oklahoma. That's the only okay. game I can think of. Like in the semifinal. So, um, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, like you said, if he could repeat that performance against Michigan, then I think, yeah, Washington's or, or Trevor probably... Lawrence against Alabama in that national title game. Like they, it's very rarefied air. Like he's playing at such a high level that it's like, it's very annoying. Cause again, like I, I'm going to pick Michigan to win this game. <laughs> I think Michigan is clearly a way better football team, but if Penix is unconscious again, like, Washington can win. I mean, Washington's won 10 games by 10 points or less, which has never been done in history before. They're 10 straight games by 10 points or less. Um, there's a... They've beaten teams in that stretch that are better than them, right? I mean, I just... They're just... They've got... They sold their soul, man. I don't know. I, I'm picking Michigan too, but it's just like I said in the preview of this game is... I picked Texas, but if Washington wins, I'm going to be like, yep. That like, doesn't surprise me. It wouldn't me. surprise me if they did. Should they? No, they shouldn't. But, like, the one thing yeah. I'll say is that I think that Michigan is going to be way more disciplined sticking to their game plan going into the game. Yeah, like, let's talk about that. They aren't going to get away from they, – like, they're just going to grind on them. And I don't – I really – Washington is not deep on the defensive front, and I don't think Washington has enough quality – to consistently stop Michigan and Michigan's I mean, wall coach, they're Michigan's Michigan's coaching staff is not going to be like, hey, we can run the ball on them and then just come out and run vanilla run plays. Like they're going to be well schemed, um, and they're going to have some some good stuff off of that. 
Uh, so I, I think Michigan is is every bit as well coached as Washington. I think I think Kalen DeBoer has done an unbelievable job this year. Uh, but regardless of Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix is playing some of the best football I've ever seen a college quarterback play right now. Um, and he's got the receivers to, to to go to. So we'll see what happens. But I'm I'm hoping Michigan wins. Please, Lord Almighty, do not let the Huskies win a national title. Yeah, go back to this Texas game. I mean, you know, they they actually stopped Washington's run game pretty well. Washington ran for three and a half, three point three yards per carry. Uh, you know, so most of that was in short yard situations, and, and it was effective when they needed it. But it was more classic Washington, where we're just going to throw the ball around because we don't need to run. Texas, on the other hand. C.J. Baxter and Jaden Blue averaged almost seven yards of carry. Could be the two of them. Six point six point eight five yards per carry between the two of them, and they got nine carries each, like eighteen combined carries in a game where where Texas threw the ball forty three times. <laughs> uh, it is inexplicable to me how you can you can have that much success running, and then every time you come out in first down, you're throwing the ball. I it was I I, I don't know what Sark was thinking. Um, with their game plan, and then more so with the lack of adjusting to it. And I think they did at points in the third quarter, and then they had the, the the costly fumbles that I think like really were a bigger factor in this game. Because you know the one the other thing about Washington we've seen now uh, several times out of them is they don't they, <laughs> they let teams back in. You know they've done that a few times this year where they it looks like the game should be over, and then all of a sudden. They just don't, they don't put their foot down and they go dig it into a dry spell. And then all of a sudden the other teams like scores once or twice, gets back in it, takes the lead or, or has a chance to take the lead. And, and, and that happened again in this game. And like that last sequence, like it was unbelievable. I mean, I turned the game off. I thought it was over. And then I, you know, and I'm like, Washington had the ball, they're running out the clock. And then the next thing I hear is like, oh, Texas has the ball. It's a 12 yard line. I'm like, what? And uh, it's just Washington's fairy dust deal with the devil like worked again <laughs> it's like yeah, I don't know uh, I, I hope it ends like it needs to end because this it has to end the... it has so. to let's talk about that so I, I you know kind of I know we're talking a little, a little bit I mean Michigan like you said Michigan is not if Michigan can run the ball for six and a half yards of carry like Texas did they're not going to They'll do, they'll do what they did against Penn State. They'll just, they will just not throw, the, throw ball, the ball. Which, honestly, Texas would have been better off taking the game out of Quinn Ewers' hands and just not throwing the ball. But they, it's Steve Sarkeesian. He can't do that. Yeah, he kind of out, you know, outthought himself, outcoached himself, whatever you want to call it. Everyone's been yeah. doing that against Washington. It's kind of but, bizarre, isn't it? Oregon's <laughs> done it twice now. Texas just did it. Like, I, I don't know. Like... They're good for Look, good for Washington. Washington for... is a great football team. I, we're not saying they're not. They are a great football team. But you have to also acknowledge they've had. But they're one of the luckiest teams of all time. Of yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can absolutely I mean, acknowledge that. Both things are true. Yes, and it, it doesn't because lots I... of great football teams don't end up winning a title or making it to a title game because they have a bad luck play here or there, or the other team makes a play here or there. And for whatever reason, everybody who plays Washington doesn't make the play. Yep. And, and look, if that happens a couple times, you can say that means Washington's players made that play instead. And that's true some of those times. But when that happens 27 times over a six-game span, <clears throat> that's just you're defying all odds. 
Yeah, well, Washington better get it done because if they don't get it done, and this is they're going to be their only opportunity in our lifetime. So, just yeah, they're not. uh, There, there's uh, that. I I cannot wait. I there's not another Penix coming along. I hope this gets clipped by Washington fans. I can't. I am eagerly anticipating the Will Rogers era at Washington. I personally cannot wait for the Will Rogers era at at Washington because the Michael Penix era sucks. Oh my gosh, (laughs) it sucks so bad. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, I, I think Michigan will run the ball. They'll be able to run the ball. I really think this comes down to it, you know, comes down to how many, you know, how many stops can Michigan get? Now, do you know what the you know, worst it, part about this is? I I actually like Michael Penix. That's the worst part. Like, <laughs> like Michael Penix is likable. Like this sucks. This really, really sucks, and it needs to end. Yeah. Well, so what's your prediction? Who's winning? We'll, we'll call this, and then we'll call it a Michigan. Night. Yeah, you got to go with Michigan. Please, Michigan's got to win this God. one. Twenty-seven, twenty-four, thirty-one, twenty-four, something like that. I, I think, I think it's going to be a relatively low-scoring game. You know, and Michigan's just got to—they've got to—they've got to just impose their will offensively. Treat this game like they did Penn State, like they did Ohio State, like like they did Alabama to a degree. And then on the other side of the ball, they just, you just got to get enough stops. They don't, you know, they don't have to shut Washington down. You've just got to get stops on, you know, 40% of their possessions or something like that. And then you could win. Yes. Yeah. I like that. That's a good plan, Doug. Thank you. Don't turn the ball over. JJ McCarthy can pass to can't protect the ball. And if that means you don't let them throw it, then you don't let them throw it. Yeah, then just don't. There's, I mean, you don't, I don't think they need to, anyways. Like, don't don't overthink yourself against Washington, please. Yeah, I, I think it feels like teams feel like they need to get into a track meet with them. Like that's felt like what Texas thought. Like, oh, we got to outscore them. Washington's we gotta, we gotta... offense is very explosive and very good, but it's also very, very, very reliant on Michael Penix making insane throws. So, like. You don't need to go score for score with them in the way that you would think you need to with a traditionally incredible offense. You just need to play your game and not get off your game plan because it's going to be your best. It's going to be your best chance to have success. Yeah, yeah, because their offense will will at some point and during the game, and it happens almost every game. They they'll have two or three series in a row where they don't make those insane throws and they pop. Yeah, because it's they not a, a sustainable goal. real way to run offense. Except they somehow make it that. They're good coaching. Their coaches are. Uh, uh, this I this, have the utmost this, respect. This Washington for team has done a doozy on my mental health. <laughs> All of ours, my friend. But hopefully that ends on Monday. So um, go blue, Michigan. I predict predict will win. Jim Harbaugh will ride off into the sunset of the NFL, carrying the trophy with him. Or I guess he'll have to leave it in Ann Arbor, but you know what I mean. Who cares? Give us Gallon Bear. Get the heck out of here. <laughs> All right, QB, anything else? No, I'm good. All right. Thanks for uh, syncing up. It's good to talk again. We'll be back, I don't know, some point next week. We don't have a set schedule right now. We're we're just rolling when we can roll and talking about when there's stuff to talk about. So we'll we'll be back next week. We'll talk about this game. We'll we'll talk about anything else relevant to the ducks and uh you know, enjoy your January, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>